That familiar voice, that familiar music tells us it is time for us to take a look at the Manx Sky at Night, this time for the month of August. Joining me in the studio and very welcome here is Howard Parkin. Faster my good evening, uh, Howard. Faster my to you, Judith. And are you well, sir? Very well, thank you. Very well, well indeed. You've got plenty to tell us tonight, oh, have you? Oh, always got plenty to talk about. Always. Well, I'm sure that, unlike the rest of us, you are glad that the nights are drawing I'm, in a little I'm bit, aren't you? so. We, this is a great time of the year for astronomy because we really start to get those, those dark nights. I don't know about you, even though I love the summer and I love the sunshine and everything else, I don't like light nights. Not because of astronomy. I just don't like it when you go to bed, it's still daylight. I'm a traditionist. I like it to, when you go to bed, it's dark. When you get up, it's... It, it, it's light, but that's just me. Howard, you're working hard, but you're not convincing me. I, lo- <laughs> I love the fact that you can go out for a walk at 10 o'clock at night. Well, that is, that is and, good, And yes. that, that I love. And However, we, we have, have had some good weather this summer. We've had some lovely um, nice, nice evenings in the summer months. And some beautiful sunsets. Oh, we have indeed. We have indeed. But we're looking a little higher up in the sky now, Yes, we? we are indeed. What's good about this year, of course, is the thing is the sun goes down as we approach the equinox and the solstice and all that sort of stuff we'll talk about later. The sun, at beginning of September, goes down just after 10 past or just before 10 past 8 only 30 days later 30 of September it's going down 3 minutes before 7 so over an hour difference in the time that the sun goes down and that makes a huge difference for us looking at the stars I often talk about, usually talk about this in June-July time, but astronomical twilight, which is when it's properly dark, doesn't occur until half past ten at night on the 1st of September. That's when the sun is 18 degrees or more below the horizon. And 30 days later, it's an hour longer. It's an hour and a half longer, actually. It's four minutes to nine. Um, So astronomical twilight starts at nine o'clock, just before nine o'clock. So we can go outside in September, around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. So it's not too late, so you can go outside and see for yourself all these wonderful features in the night sky. And people often say to me, the the classic one, I've talked about this before, but the classic one is people say to me, oh yes, I can see the plough. Because the plough sits on the horizon in September and October. It sits on the horizon. That's where it lives according to people who know nothing about astronomy. But of course it rotates around the pole and the rest of the year it might be standing on its tail, it might be overhead, it might be coming down towards the horizon. But the classic shape we all know of, the shape of the plough, or it's a major to give its proper name, the Big Bear, is sitting on the northern horizon. And that's where it sits in September. So the start of the astronomical year starts in September, the plough is on the horizon, all is well with the universe and we can start doing our observing throughout the rest of the season. Do you know what, Howard? Your enthusiasm for this is just <laughs> infectious. And and I, I say that as an entirely as a compliment because what you're doing is you're you're converting more people to so. this whole subject of well, looking I, that's at that's what I wanted. That's what it's all about. That's what I love doing. I, I have nothing more 
pleasure. I get more, more pleasure than showing people what they can see in the sky or talking about it and standing in front of a bunch of school children or adults or anything else and trying to get my enthusiasm into them to make them to want to go and do it. And I love it when I'm, I may go to school in particular and then someone will say to me a few days later or the teacher will say, you know, little Johnny said um, he took his dad out stargazing. Yes, that's the name of the game. Yeah. That's what my dad did for me all those years ago. And hopefully I can pass it on for the next generation. And the lovely thing is that although, you know, we're, we're talking about the Manx sky at night in the month of August, last August and next August, it won't be the same. There will be subtle things different. Yeah. The planets move around all the time. The very word planet means wander in Greek. So they knew the planets wandered. Don't get me started on astrology and astronomy because that's a, a real taboo subject for most astronomers. But we didn't know why the planets moved around the sky. So that's why astrology was so popular centuries ago because they had to predict where the planets would be. And that's what the astrologers did. Once Newton and um, Galileo and all them and, and Copernicus sport it by proving the sun was at the middle of the universe, oh, the astrologers... That's when astronomy and astrology parted company. But that ability to predict the position of the planets is why astrology became so popular. And indeed, lots of people still read the horoscopes, but that's something we won't talk about. What I love is the, the, the way that you can still bring a little bit of romance in the stories as legends, oh, why, yes. why the stars, the planets are, well, are named as they're named. This is the month, this autumn is always the best time of the year to talk about the legends of astronomy. The, I won't probably do it this month, we've done it before, but the legend of Andromeda and Perseus and Pegasus and the winged horse and Cassiopeia and all that, though those constellations, that story features in the autumnal sky. Now, isn't it odd that we have a wonderful story that's evolved at the time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere when the stars appear earlier and early each night? So that story has come about at a time when the ancient peoples and the Northern Hemisphere and most astronomical legends are Northern Hemisphere based because we didn't know the Southern Hemisphere existed or not in the way that we, we know now. Uh, so these legends grew. You can just imagine the scene, can't you, of a, of a father showing his children these wonderful features in the sky making up these weird and wonderful stories which have got germs of truth in them, of course. Some of them. And also, they do, it's those little stories that stick in our mind yeah, that makes it all more memorable. Yeah, the plough sitting on the horizon. I know it's not a plough, it's, it's a, uh, some age of the big bear, but we see it as that shape. And, you know, the plough is a feature of agriculture for centuries ago. Yes. Right, come on then, what should we be looking for? Look for the plough on the horizon. Usual trick, follow the two stars on the right-hand side, the two bright stars on the right-hand side. They're called Merak and Dubé. Follow them up and you'll find the pole star. You're now heading due north. That's how we find north. That's how we navigate. That's how the Vikings found the Isle of Man and all these other things. That's how celestial navigation starts. Now, turn around 180 degrees and look the other way. And you're going to see a star sitting on its own, minding its own business, don't get confused with Jupiter, which will be slightly to the right towards the west, southwest. That's Jupiter. That's a planet. That's different. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, but this star is called Fomalhaut, and it's the principal star of the southern fish, Pisces Australis. And why I want people to look at that is we're in the throes now of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions. The Apollo 11, obviously, mission was in July. We've got Apollo 12 coming up 50 years this November. And then we've got Apollo 13 next April. 
which I'll be talking about near the time. But the reason I want you to look at the star Fomalhaut is Fomalhaut is one of those stars that was absolutely crucial to the Apollo 13 mission. When Jim Lovell, in the lunar module, on their way to the moon, with the, the, the service module was disabled, they had to find out roughly what direction they were heading, and they didn't know precisely, and he used a star sighting of a number of stars, and one of those was Fomalhaut. So look at that star right behind you, look north, Turn around, look the opposite direction, you'll see a star, not as bright as Jupiter, which is in the southwest, but fainter than that. That star, Fomalhaut, was vital to bring those astronauts home. And the, the ability to know the stars, the ability to work out what was what, was how they got managed to get the sighting with a sextant through the window. Imagine a fogged up window. Imagine your car on a cold, frosty morning and it's misting up and there's ice on the outside and all the rest. That's what it was like for them. They couldn't see through the window very clearly. So he was able to identify that star and along with other stars as well he identified, they were able to work out exactly where they were heading so they would know how precisely they'd need to fire the lunar module engine to get back. So it was a lifesaver for them. And that's a star we can see in the Isle of Man at this particular time of the year. Navigating by the stars, of course, we, we tend to, f well, not exactly forget, but overlook the fact that that was how they navigated the of seas, course, wasn't it? Exactly how it was. That's why the North Pole star, the Polaris, is so vital to them. The other famous group of stars, which we can see in the sky this time of the year, is the Summer Triangle. I often talk about the Summer Triangle in June, July, August, but the Summer Triangle is still there. And as it goes dark, just before 8 o'clock, as it starts to go dark, in the midst of astronomical twilight we mentioned earlier, look for three stars. More or less, one is overhead, and the other two you can't miss. It's just three very bright stars. That's the Summer Triangle, which we know was used by the Vikings. It's all very clever. You don't just look at a star and measure its height above the horizon. You measure the angle from one star to the other. And that enables you, by using these particular stars, I think from memory there's about 56 named stars visible in the Northern Hemisphere in particular. Those stars, they're angled to each other and their compass directions. Using an almanac or the ancient... People used to have to do the, the readings that they had in their heads. Those give us the ability to navigate precisely on the Earth and, of course, as I say, with Apollo 13 in space. Absolutely fascinating. Very, absolutely. I mean, the, the ingenious ability of these people to do this, and they did it. I mean, you always ask the question of how many Viking ships left Norway and how many made it to where they were going, because if they were lost, they never heard from them again. But, of course, they had the ability, they knew they had to navigate some way, and obviously using the sun and the stars, of course, you need the weather, but um, then we get into looking at sun sights and the measure of the angle above the horizon and all the rest. But Celestial navigation is a vital part of how we get ourselves around the planets safely and successfully. And just showed how, it, in every generation, how clever those people were and, and exactly. how brave they were. Oh, indeed, there's no question. I mean... We talk about the bravery of the astronauts of today. Well, cast your mind back only 100 years ago to flying across the Atlantic for the first time. I know that's different from what we're talking about. But then go back a 1,000 years to people navigating across the Atlantic or across the Pacific Ocean. You know, it was absolutely foolhardy. But again, it goes back to this spirit of man, this ability of wanting to go faster, stronger and discover new things. And that's within us all. So that's what we're doing. But it, it is good for, for you to remind us, as you have done a few moments ago, about what the conditions would have been like within the spacecraft. Oh, Misty, iced up. Because we can kind of sanitise it, can't we? Oh, yeah. We can look at the pictures, as we have been doing recently, of the astronauts in the studio 
holding their helmets in their immaculate space uniforms, Absolutely. as you might say. And we kind of think that that is everything we need to know yeah. about space travel. But it, it's... It's not as, not it's as pleasant as the, that. The reality is much grittier, yeah. isn't it? And I, I would equate the astronauts' existence on board a spacecraft in the Apollo era to probably the Pilgrim Fathers going across the Atlantic in the Mayflower. Similar, very austere, dire conditions with minimal supplies of water and food. Yes, they had much better than that on the spacecraft, but the, to push the envelope, to push this ability to explore, you've got to take a bit of discomfort. Not like nowadays, we fly across the Atlantic or whichever place we're going to, we can go in beautiful cabins, have you know gourmet meals and all the rest, or indeed on cruise ships, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> We don't know anyone who goes no, on cruise no, ships no, no, on this programme. No, Always no. going a rowing boat across the, um, the Irish Sea. <laughs> Let's get back to the sky, Howard. What, what next? Well, so we've looked at Fomalhaut, which is in the south-southern sky, and we've looked at the plough on the northern horizon. But now I want you to cast your eyes just a bit up from Fomalhaut. Literally go up about halfway between the horizon and the zenith, your overhead point, and you'll see a faint but noticeable square in the sky. This is surprisingly called the Square of Pegasus. This is the depiction of the winged horse Pegasus, which Perseus, from our meteor shower fame from last month, rode on after he'd slain the Medusa. He had the head in his hands, turned the head of the Medusa onto the monster that was about to devour Andromeda. I'm abbreviating the story here. The monster was turned to stone. He rescued Andromeda. They all lived happily ever after. And that's one of these classic, famous legends. I've talked about it before, and I'll no doubt talk about it again. But this group of stars, there's about seven constellations in this part of the sky. The square of Pegasus is by far the easiest to find. But they all make up this wonderful story. And as I said earlier, there's a germ of truth in it, because within the constellation of Perseus, the hero, there is a star that blinks. It's the eye of the Medusa. It actually blinks. There's one star going round another star, and it makes the star drop in brightness, or magnitude we call it, and that's the winking eye of the monster. So that is true, that is 100%. We didn't know till the 1930s what made this star change in brightness, but the ancient astronomers attributed the legend of that's a winking eye of the demon. And you can see it for yourself. If you go outside at about um, 10 past 10 on the 10th of September, 10 past 10, that star will have dropped in brightness. Now, I'm not going to explain how to find that star. It's too difficult to do now. But go online, look for yourselves how to find the star Algol, A-L-G-O-L, and look at that star. And it noticeably drops dramatically in brightness. And one of the things we do as astronomers with people is we show people how to find that when we're at the observatory or we're showing people with my telescope wherever I am. and Or even that you don't need a telescope, the naked eye will do it. And it just makes you think, well, how do they know that a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago? And yet we now know of a scientific boring explanation for it, but there was a mystique about it. And it all adds to this sort of idea of the mystique and the, the mystery of the heavens. Well, we are approaching the autumn, like it or not, I dare say in a few moments we're going to be talking about the moon again. Oh, we'll have to. Our music choice tonight just has to be... Only one song it could be, because the full moon in September is The Harvest Moon. Come a little bit closer Hear what I have to say Just like children sleeping, we could dream this night away. Come a little bit closer. 
The only possible music choice that it could be tonight, Neil Young's Harvest Moon. Back now to Howard Parkin in the studio here as we take a look at the August Manx sky at night. So where do we go next, Howard? Well, we've looked at the various objects in the sky, the stars of the sky. As the stars begin to get dark, we get excited about seeing the stars, but we mustn't forget the planets. The planets are always there. We were talking about this earlier, about the fact that the planets wander around the sky and predicting where they were was a, a major feature of the ancient observing. Well, we've got not a lot of planets visible at the moment. We've got the anticipation to come, though. Mercury, we had the excitement of seeing Mercury earlier this month, uh, earlier in August. We had the excitement of seeing Mercury in the morning sky. I hope some people got to see it. Please let us know if you did. But Mercury goes round the back of the sun on the 4th of September, so we're not going to see it now for some time. But it will be visible in the evening sky around the 13th of September, but very, very low and very difficult to see. And at this point, I must tell people, never, ever, ever use a telescope or binoculars when the sun is still above the horizon. Wait till the sun goes down before you turn your telescope or binoculars on the sky of the western horizon. But on the 13th of September, Mercury and Venus are going to be quite close to each other, but only visible through binoculars because they're very, very low. But that's an anticipation for us because Venus is going to start getting higher and higher and rising in our sky. And by November, uh, December time, it'll be like a beacon shining in the western sky. It really will be quite spectacular. And that's 
something we can really look forward to. Mercury, of course, switches from one side to the other. It goes across the face of the sun in November. We spoke about that last month, and we'll be talking about that in November or at the end of October. Mars is also not visible. Mars, coincidentally, also goes around the back of the sun on the 2nd of September, so that won't be visible in our sky for some time. But Jupiter and Saturn are sitting pretty, very easy to spot in our sky. As I mentioned already, Jupiter, very, very easy to see, very bright in the southwestern sky, and the moon will be very close to... If you can't find Jupiter, just look for the moon on the 5th and the 6th of September. It'll be one side of Jupiter on the 5th, the other side on the 6th, which shows us how the moon rotates around the Earth and moves against the background of stars. But then, only a couple of days later, Saturn uh, is going to have the moon visit it, if you like. And on the 7th and the 8th of September, Saturn will be, which is to the left of Jupiter, the moon will be each side of Saturn on those dates. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, Saturn actually is going to get covered by the moon, what we call an occultation. But that's not visible from the Alaman skies, I'm afraid. Now, sometimes in one's diary, you see in little writing next to a date, equinox. That's right. I wonder what an equinox is. Well, it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's equinox, equal, equal day and equal night. The time that the sun is above the horizon is exactly the same as the time the sun is below the horizon. And at exactly 7.50 a.m. on the morning of the 23rd of September, we reach that point in the sky when the sun drops. It's been dropping down since the, the solstice in June when it was at its highest point above the equator, projected out onto the sky, and it's now dropping down. It crosses the equator time of equal day equal night on the 23rd of September and now it's head south and the horrible cold winter's nights until it reaches the 21st of December and then it will start coming back up again and we'll have the other equinox the vernal or spring equinox on the 21st of March this is what we call the autumnal equinox the sun is dropping as opposed to the vernal equinox when it's rising and that's what it means, equal day and equal night. You see, there's always something to learn. <laughs> now, we said we were going to talk about the moon. What's this, micro or wimpy? Seriously, the moon is in an orbit around the Earth and every object orbiting another is in what we call an elliptical orbit. Mercury is so strange because it's got a very big elliptical orbit around the sun. But the moon orbits around the Earth. Sometimes it's closer to the Earth and further away from the Earth. We call the word apogee and perigee near peri apo further well the moon we always get all the people excited when we have a super moon in the sky and the moon can be 14 percent bigger than it can be at other times well this is the exact opposite the posh name for it is the micro moon which means it's at furthest point away from the earth therefore it's uh, going to be slightly smaller you won't notice the difference to the naked eye you'd have to measure it very accurately but you can cover the moon with your little fingernail. Your arm held at arm's length, the moon will be completely covered by your fingernail. It looks massive on the horizon, but your little fingernail will cover it. Try it for yourself and see. Well, on the 14th of September, it's going to be even slightly smaller than usual. It's a micro moon, or much better, I call it the wimpy moon, uh, as opposed to the super moon or the bigger moon, which we get, which we actually got in January, February and March. We've actually got greedy now. We say if it's within 90 degrees of its maximum size in a month, then it's a super moon. So we get three months of super moons. We also get three months of um, uh, wimpy moons or micro moons, to be more precise. So is wimpy moon a Howard Parkin exclusive descriptive term? No, I have read it in other books, but uh, it's not just me. I have read it somewhere else, but uh, it's not a scientific name. In fact, neither is micro moon. It is the moon is at apogee. 
And there's another word called Zygi, which is, I won't even try and spell it for you, which is all to do with orbital parameters of the Earth and the Moon and all the rest. All boring stuff. But it is nice to know when the supermoon is out. We used to hate it as astronomers, and lots of astronomers don't like the expression supermoon in particular. But if it gets people looking at the Moon, but the amount of time people will say to me, didn't the Moon look big today? I've never seen it so big. It's always big when it's on the horizon because it's looking at it against a tree or a house or a tower of refuge or whatever. Which leads me very nicely, before we get beaten by the clock, to later space news. Yes, not a lot going on at the moment, but there is an exciting possibility that in September, in a few weeks' time, the Boeing Starliner spacecraft is scheduled, hopefully, to launch unmanned. Let's wind the clock back a fraction. NASA's new space system is called the Orion spacecraft, launching on their new rocket, the SLS rocket. In the meantime, because that's not going to be till 2022 or possibly 2023, they're using commercial space companies to launch astronauts into space. So that's the plan. There are two companies in particular vying to do this. They're both going to do it parallel with each other. SpaceX and the Dragon spacecraft had their unmanned test last March. Very successful it was indeed. And their manned version of that is now being put back to probably December because they had a, a slight problem. I'll say a slight problem, but it was um, a major problem really, which put the whole thing back. But that's probably going to be unmanned test in March, man launch in December. Boeing equivalent, the Starliner, their unmanned test is now scheduled hopefully for September. And their manned version of the new Starliner, if their unmanned vehicle works successfully, will probably, meant to be possibly December, but it'll probably get pushed back to February, March, I'm guessing. So watch this space, because that will be a lot of news in the media about that. And um, it's scheduled for late September. Um, if I'm a betting man, it'll probably get pushed back to October or even November. But it's exciting because it's only a matter of months now before we start launching men and women from the American soil on American rockets again up to the International Space Station, which nicely leads us into the fact that the ISS will be visible in our evening skies from roughly the 18th of September uh, until early October. So we'll be able to see it going across the sky. And who knows, the Boeing Starliner may be well docked to it when we're watching it from the Isle of Man at the end of September just extraordinary that we can look up into the sky from the island and say yes that's the international space station absolutely we can even do better than that when the shuttle was flying we could actually see the space shuttle approaching the station and in the external tank falling away from the space shuttle just after launch we could actually see that from the isle of man on more than one occasion and it's incredible we can see these things of things happening in florida well obviously the, the sky's uh, they'll obviously move from Florida towards the Isle of Man. But because the space station is at a height above the horizon to match up with the launch facilities of Russia and the, um, the United States, and um, we get to see these things in our Manx skies quite often. Boeing Starliner has got the feel of the sound of an, of an airline. It doesn't, but I think they've done that deliberately. The Boeing Starliner and the SpaceX Dragon are very similar in shape and size and everything else because they've got to be to fit on top of the rockets. Um, but the idea is, we've called it the XB-27. It wouldn't have half the, 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 the air about it as Starliner. It's a small capsule which will take up to four people, I understand. But do you think they've started to call it the Boeing Starliner to make us think along the lines of commercial space travel? Probably the marketing department of the Boeing company probably almost certainly have deliberately chosen a name that will conjure up these wonderful ideas of... We'll get you into <laughs> space before we yeah. finish doing this series I, of programmes. I'm not going on a one-way ticket, though.
I'm coming back. Sorry. (laughs) You are definitely coming back. Howard, people have said to me that they really love you talking about the skies, but they say there's so much information in the programme. I wish we could listen to it again. Well, as of now, you can listen to it again because we're going to start making this into a regular podcast, aren't we? Great. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well. So let's just finish off with a quick commercial for the Manx Sky at Night. I'm going to create a podcast from our broadcast from the end of last month. Last month's and this month's will, within 24 hours, will be available as a podcast via our website, manxradio.com, and it'll just be under the list of podcasts. Just look for Manx Sky at Night. If you go to the website, you can not only listen to it, but people can subscribe completely free. And all that means is you get a little alert on your mobile device, your tablet or your phone when there's a new edition of the podcast to listen to. So uh, we we will spread you around the world, Howard. (laughs) That sounds good to me. Howard Parkin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We look forward to talking to you at the end of September. Thanks. Good night. The Nation Station, Manx Radio.